previously on the yellow car. When you look at this case as a whole and all the evidence and all the facts, do you think Mike Entazari killed Effie? I do not. What would have been their motive? Why would they kill Effie over a business? There was a clear financial gain. My mom had been saving that for almost a decade. She's not gonna spend $23,000 into three months preceding her homicide. The investigation is ongoing. We are finding new information, it seems like, every day. Did the other people then end up taking control or taking over this business at that point? Did they have a financial gain after she died? Yes, and yes, they did. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they took over. Before we begin, a warning that this episode contains graphic subject matter. Some people may find it disturbing. If you've ever watched a dramatized detective show, you've probably seen what's referred to as a crazy wall. It's where photos and maps and documents are plastered across a board with thumbtacks, with pieces of string connecting everything like one massive spider web. An attempt to link clues and solve a crime. Pune Gray's office is her personal version of a crazy wall. All those banker boxes filled with documents and giant dry erase boards loaded with different names, dates, and facts of the case. And all of these intricate theories and pieces of evidence have kept Pune company for 32 years now. They occupy her mind constantly. There's always another task to complete, a lead to follow, a string to connect. This never-ending pursuit is the cornerstone of her identity. But even though Pune lives and breathes this case, there's still a void in her life, an unfulfilled part of her soul. It's a loneliness Pune can't escape, no matter how much she obsesses over every last detail of her mom's murder. It's the feeling of grief over the loss of family. Because Pune didn't just lose her mom in all of this, she lost her dad too. Her entire family unit, as she knew it, was destroyed the day Effie Entazari died. Mike Entazari spent 16 years in prison for the murder of his estranged wife. And after he got out, he wasn't the same jovial yet strict father Pune remembered. And he never was again, up until he died in 2019. I'm your host, Ashley Korsland. Welcome to The Yellow Car, a KGW original podcast. This is the beginning of the end. By now, you may have made up your mind on who you think killed Effie. Maybe it's Pune's group of suspects. After all, Pune has compiled a compelling case against them. Or maybe you think Mike did it. I think that's normal with a story this complicated. But regardless of what you or I think or speculate, there is one thing we know for sure. This entire story is a tragedy. And not just because an innocent woman lost her life. It's because a family was ripped apart. Throughout this podcast, you've gotten to know Pune as the staple of the story. But we can't forget she has a brother who was deeply affected, too. Puya Antazari was a teenager, just 14 when his mom died, 15 when his dad went to prison. Daddy, is it taping? Is it taping? Old family videos, mostly filmed by Mike, highlighted Puya's bright and cheerful disposition. Tell me when you're taping. Puya was a performer at heart. Go ahead, I'm taping it. And always putting on a show for his family. Dude, <laughs> it's the wonderful day in the name of the day in the name of the But of course, that was a different time. And Puya was a different person than he is today. When I first contacted him to see if he wanted to do an interview for this podcast, he politely declined. 
He told me even thinking about what happened to his mom brought back too much trauma, and he just isn't as open to talking about the case as his sister. Yeah, thanks for um, talking with me. And I, and but a few months after I initially reached out, he let me know he was ready to share his story. And I did just want to make sure you that you do feel comfortable talking because you don't have to. I don't want you to feel like you got pushed into anything or guilted. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay. I, I appreciate you saying that. It's, I do feel comfortable talking to you about it um, briefly. Uh, I, I was a little reluctant at first. Like I said, it was a... a terrible time in my life and uh it's hard for me to talk about it um but i think if it helps out a little bit then i think it i should probably uh, help do my part talk to me a little bit about the impact that this whole thing had on your life because not only did you lose your mom but you had to watch Mm -hmm. your dad go away to prison i mean what impact did this have on your your young life at the time you were a teenager it had a terrible impact to be honest with you ashley um pretty much destroyed my life. Um, you know, losing your mom at such a young age like that. Um, and then your father and, uh, you know, I had my sister, but you know, she was trying to do her schooling stuff and, and whatnot. It's very difficult. Um, I kind of fell into a world of, uh, depression mixed with a little bit of alcohol and drugs, uh, just to help me deal with the pain um, because I didn't know any other way to deal with it. So it was very traumatizing. It's affected my, uh, relationship with women as well. Um, I have a hard time. I feel like getting attached or getting close to, uh, to women, <laughs> so to speak. So yeah, you, you can imagine, um, a, a young boy at that age losing his mom and, you know, just pretty much, uh, all the emotions you can think that somebody would go through, I, I went through them. On the Monday morning of his mom's murder, Puya was in class at his high school in Vancouver, ready to begin the school week. He remembers being pulled out of the classroom by his principal. So I thought I was in trouble, but I couldn't think, well, why would I be in trouble? I didn't do anything. And he took me to the principal's office where my counselor was there, and there was a bunch of cops there. and. So I'm freaking out, like, what is going on? And that's when they told me that that your mom's had an accident and she's dead, is what they said. And pretty much I had a panic attack right there. Uh, They didn't tell me much more than that at that point. Just barraging me with all these questions and also telling me things like, we found blood all over your dad's clothes, or we found your mom's blood all over your father's clothes. We know he did it, so don't try to defend him. So I felt like they were trying to pin me in a corner and get me to say something uh, to incriminate my father. And I had no clue what was going on. I just remember saying, no, my father would never do that. It was a very scary time because I didn't know what was going on. So in my mind, I'm like, did he do it? Did he not do it? I don't know. But investigators hadn't found Effie's blood all over Mike's clothing. Puya feels they were trying to get him to turn on his dad. He would have been the only person who could have given Mike an alibi the morning of the shooting because Puya was at Mike's house. And through all the chaos and confusion, Puya gave detectives several different accounts of Mike's whereabouts that day and ultimately temporarily landed in foster care and forced by court order to testify during his dad's murder trial. And then they arrest me, which I thought was just unbelievable. And they did it right in front of my father. And my dad said, I'll never forget my father saying, why are you arresting him? And one of the detectives said, because he loves you too much. I'll never forget that. Wow. As if I was defending him, but I honestly had no clue what was going on. My head is just spinning. I'm a young boy. I don't know anything. So I ended up going. They took me to a juvenile detention center, and I felt like I was in there for a long time, but I don't think it was more than a couple weeks. 
the reason they arrested you was that because they felt you gave different stories about your dad's whereabouts that morning was that the crux of why they took you no, into custody I think this is why i think they did it i believe that they arrested me right in front of my father to put pressure on my father to snap and say i did it i did it let him go i truly believe that yeah because they didn't need me they didn't really they didn't need me but i think it was just let's arrest this little kid right in front of his father so he just has an emotional breakdown that says i did it guys you know that's my theory on it do you hold anger to this day about any of this you know who i hold anger to is the gosh darn detectives back then and the prosecutor who were just trying to steal the deal on this case they just just another notch they wanted to get it over quickly they knew my father was an easy target you know hindsight's 2020 and there have been a lot of forensic advancements and technology um advancements over the years since the murder do you i guess do you fault detectives for not pursuing some of this harder or do you kind of understand like why they would have looked at your dad because it is a real the case your sister has compiled after 30 years is super complex and I don't know if I was a detective (laughs) in 1989 that I would have either believed that any of this stuff is possible or even known where to even look you know do you fault them for that or because some of it they wouldn't have known to even wrap their brains around or you know right I see your uh I see the the point you're making behind that. And yeah, there might be another side to the to the story in hindsight, like you said. But uh, I do believe that they could have done just a little bit better police work, uh, investigative work, because they would have they would have seen the the clues, but that they overlooked a lot of stuff. The reason I say that is because thirty years later my sister has discovered all this stuff. And it's just some of it is just unbelievable to me that they did that they overlooked it. I reached out to the detectives and the prosecutor who worked on this case back in 1989. They either declined to be interviewed or I didn't receive any response. Um, Puya, what is one thing that you still remember of your mom and, and one thing you remember about your dad that's really touched you to this day? I do remember my mom just being, uh, she was a very beautiful woman, very happy, very, uh, at least from what I saw when she was with me, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of stuff going on that I didn't know about, but I just remember her being very gentle and uh, she loved children and she just was a good woman in general. And my father was an excellent violinist um, a Persian violinist if you can believe that and so I remember uh, when I had a hard time sleeping as a child he would sit there next to me in my bed and he would play his violin and it would soothe me so much that I would fall asleep there's there's a lot of things yeah both my parents you know loved me a lot and I loved them a lot and um, it's just very tragic that everything ended up the way that it did. Was there a time, Puya, that you ever wondered whether your dad did do it or you doubted his um, story that he had nothing to do with it? I I always thought he had nothing to do with it because he couldn't hurt a fly. I mean, I, I remember when my cat died, he cried for two weeks over it. I mean, he was a very gentle man and cared for others tremendously. Very emotional, very sensitive man. Uh, A lot like myself, actually. But there's no doubt in my mind that he didn't do it. I never thought for one minute that he did. What do you think your dad would think of this effort today if he were still alive? I think he would be completely blown away that we've gotten to this stage 
because it seems like an impossible uh, endeavor <laughs> my sister has. She has a lot of perseverance, and she's done a lot of work to get us to this point. So I, I know he would be extremely proud. I wish that that's the thing. Uh, you know, he, he died in vain. He never, uh, you know, he wasn't alive to, to um, see the day where his name would be cleared. And so he had to die with that on his mind, even though he knew he was an innocent man. And uh, that's what, you know, kind of eats me up. But um, it hurts me that, you know, the two of them weren't around to see this. They would be very proud. Does that give you a sense of closure? Is closure, is that even a thing? Someone who's gone through the trauma <laughs> you've gone through? I'm, I'm sure you hear people tossing that word around, closure. What do you think of right. that? You know, I don't know if there will ever be closure because, I think about it all the time. I mean, when I go to bed at night, I dream about my parents all the time. And, and most of them are nightmares. You know, I think about the bad times more than the good times. All the crap that my sister and I went through. Um, so I don't know if there will ever be closure, but I'm, I'm, lear- I'm personally learning to move on. I found my life in music and I found my therapy. And so... I'm just trying to move on the best I can. Um, that's why I was reluctant to talk to you about it because it just, every time I talk about it, it just brings all the stuff back and then I feel like I'm right back where I was. And, you know, it's been such a long time. I was really hoping to just move on, you know, but it doesn't seem like I'm going to until we resolve this 100%. And then my sister and I can, uh, can relax a little bit and move on with our lives, I guess. Do you have a message for the people you believe and Pune believes did this? Do you have a message for this group of people? I guess my message would be your time is coming and justice will be served. After Mike Antizari was convicted of first-degree murder in 1990, he was sentenced to 25 years in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Pune worked tirelessly with her dad on filing appeals. Well, in the beginning, my dad, I remember he's like, don't worry about it, they just made a mistake. We have an appeal process coming up and it'll get fixed. Um, but uh, the appeal came and went and nothing. And after every appeal, you just saw him declining. I think we had one, one appeal where the judge found that there was merit that someone else may have committed the crime and that proper investigation hadn't been conducted back in 1989 and sent us to a lower court, which was good, but we just climbed right back out of the lower court and onto um, denials. And as a matter of fact, the last denial came after my dad had already been released from prison. And then what was it like watching him live his life out after serving a prison sentence? That must have been pretty hard. Well, it was because the person that went in was, he was young. He was in, I think he was in his early 50s. Um, very healthy, ran every day, skied every weekend. I mean, ate really well. He was just in really, really good shape. And the person that came out, came out with a lot of medical problems and he had a really bad arthritic condition and he was hunched over and he'd He'd been there for 16 years, but he might as well have been there for 40 because he had aged significantly in that time. He suffered um, badly. He didn't he didn't fit in the prison system at all. Um, he was constantly 
being in and out of solitary confinement and it's constantly having problems with inmates uh, and to send them money. And I didn't realize how bad things were until I was talking to him one day and he was attacked on the phone. So he just didn't do well there. And, and he was innocent and he kept saying, I didn't do this. And there was a point when my dad's health had started to fail and he had had a massive heart attack while he was in prison. And one of his attorneys pleaded with him to contact the governor's office and ask for a pardon so he could get an earlier release. And my dad wouldn't do it. He just wouldn't do it. He said, you know what, I didn't, I didn't kill my wife and I'm not about ready to say I did. I'm just going to stay here. So it was hard on him and it should have never happened. None of it should have ever happened. Mike served 16 years of his 25-year sentence. He was released in 2006. When he got out, he went to live with Pune for a while as he tried to rebuild his life in a post-prison world. Walk me through your relationship with him post-prison because that was, um, it wasn't the easiest of relationships. No, you know, I was really close to my mom and dad before everything happened, um, but, and I was very dependent on the two of them. And the problem was, and I, and I don't think that this was an issue necessarily just for my dad. I mean, I think that it's an issue for a lot of inmates or a lot of people that go through trauma where time stops. So my dad was still stuck in 1989 and what happened in 1989, for me, it's 16 years later. And um, the daughter that was uh, reliant on him had grown up. And not only had I grown up, but I was used to being the parent for 16 years. So, it, and it was hard to shift back. You know, I think my dad thought, well, I'm just gonna come home and everything goes back to normal and I'm the dad and you're the <laughs> little girl that I loved. Um, and that wasn't the case. I mean, it was 16 years later, I was married, I had a family. So. Pune and her father eventually lost contact with one another, and the two never repaired their relationship. And my dad had, in part because of what he went through in prison and also the heart attack, um, he was having a lot of memory problems and couldn't understand things. So it wasn't that you could say, hey, dad, it's been 16 years. He just couldn't understand. Um, he was very paranoid, very paranoid, very scared of things. So it just didn't work. It was healthier for me to... To have some distance. Yes. In his 80s, Mike went into heart failure and had a pacemaker implanted. He went into hospice where he lived out the last months of his life. He died in 2019. Pune and Puya never held a funeral for Mike, but do plan on honoring their dad once they have a resolution to this case. We, we have his ashes. And my brother and I have decided that once this case is over, that my dad loved the river, um, so we thought we'd go down to the river and let his ashes go. If there's anyone who knows this case as intimately as Pune, it's Renee Rothage, Pune's longtime attorney in Portland. I was thinking about this this morning, and I think I've been working on this case maybe for 18 years, and the time flies. I think so. I think it's 18 <laughs> it's years. I mean, my time. children were small and they yeah. now are in college or they're college graduates. 
So that's how long. My children have lived with this case their entire life. <laughs> Do you obsess over it like Pune does? Are you that in, in the trenches? Constantly. It, it's just one of those cases where there's always something to think about and always sort of fresh evidence that's been coming out in the last year and a half especially. So it is, uh, it is, a, it is a passion at this point, yes. So, Have you ever seen a case like this? No, this is one of those cases that is a once in a lifetime kind of case. It's the case that I believe that I was born to get because it is, it's, there's so much to it. It has taken decades. It is, there's so much complex evidence. There's so much complex science and it's constantly evolving. And so there is never a dull moment on this case. I would think as an attorney, um, most attorneys from time to time have people who said, I didn't do it, or my father didn't do it, or he's innocent, it was a wrong conviction. I'm sure that's not new to people in your field to hear that sort of thing, but what is it about Pune and this case specifically that made you think, you know what, there, there's something more to this here? I immediately thought that the case made no sense. I immediately thought that the motive that had been ascribed to Mike Antizari made no sense. Um, if you know anything about Mike Antizari and his wife and his family, you know, you learn as I did that they were very successful. They were an extraordinary um, couple. They both were remarkable in the success that they achieved fairly quickly as U.S. citizens. They, yes, they were in a divorce, but this divorce was amicable. They were co-parenting their child together. You know, they were meeting to exchange uh, information about uh, their son. There was plenty of assets that they had acquired in their marriage so that there was enough for everyone. And of course, you know, Miss Antizari, Effie, I guess as we call her more now, um, she was a very successful businesswoman. And Mike Antizari actually was sort of ahead of his time in the sense that he was the primary caregiver for, for his son, and in the divorce, he was actually seeking compensation for her, for childcare, for alimony. And so it never made any sense to me that he would get angry. He's not that kind of person, never had that kind of history. It didn't make sense that he would jeopardize his family, lose the mother of his child, and just frankly speaking in terms of financials, why would he kill the person who was going to pay him money to help support his child. It just made no sense. So from the beginning, I was always, I, I tend to like murder mysteries, and so this one always captivated me. I was like, what could be the real reason? How did this happen? And then of course, the lawyer in me is like, well, how do we prove it? How do we prove that this motive was just, they just got it wrong? Renee helped Pune file a wrongful death lawsuit in October of 2019. It names seven unidentified John Doe's and three unidentified Jane Doe's believed to have had direct involvement in the murder or information about it. Now, let's get into where things stand with the investigation as of this recording in August of 2021. The Clark County Sheriff's Office confirmed to me that there is a detective currently assigned to this case, but that's all the department would tell me. Everything, though, will come down to what the Clark County prosecuting attorney decides to do, whether he feels there's enough compelling and credible evidence to reopen the case and pursue new suspects. Renee and Pune are confident they've given the prosecutor everything he needs to move forward. They've handed over the DNA report, apparently linking John Doe to the DNA found on Effie Antizari at the crime scene. And they've shared everything they've uncovered about the group they suspect in the murder, including their possible motives. Pune and her team have also had multiple meetings with deputy prosecutors to review the evidence, even while this podcast was being produced. Pune expects the prosecutor to make a decision any day. What happens next? I mean, what do you hope happens now that you have this DNA evidence? Well, what we're hoping for is an arrest. I, we think we have strong evidence against the shooter and we hope for an arrest. And then we hope that the shooter then describes what happened and explains why he did it. 
you've, you've obviously collected a lot of information. You have thousands of pages of documents, interviews. You've done it all. Where does it, where does it stand? Well, right now we're working with law enforcement and we are hoping that they take the next logical steps and, and pursue and make an arrest and solve this, this crime conclusively once and for all. How unlikely or likely is it though, when, when, when a state has a conviction, when a prosecutor has a conviction on the books and they get presented all of this information 32 years later, um, do you have hope that they will take another look or, or is that pretty unlikely with a case like this? I just don't know at, at this point. I know that it's the, they've got some very smart people looking at the issue and I, I hope they do the right thing. Pune, what's your thought on that? I was just gonna say exactly what you said is that I really hope that disregarding what has happened in the past, that they do the right thing for my mom. Do you think the way Mike's trial played out in 1990 and the evidence or the lack of evidence thereof that the prosecutor at the time used and, and really the evidence the jury used to convict Mike, would that, if that trial were playing out in 2021, do you think the verdict would be different based on the evidence used? It, and that's a complicated question. We've come a long way in terms of the science. So there's no real scientific evidence linking him to this murder. So I don't think there'd be any I don't think there'd even have been an arrest. Let's say you tossed aside the science though and you put him on trial again. You know, one of the things that really drove the case was the use of prejudice. Um, he's a Middle Eastern man and they very much used bias and implicit bias to obtain that verdict against him. I mean, despite being a successful, brilliant engineer, despite having a pretty amicable divorce, they were able to draw upon this notion that a Middle Eastern man would kill a woman for property. And so have we come farther today than back then? Would the jury pool now be more immune to that sort of bias evidence? That I, I, I like to think so, but I also, I don't know. But just the science in general. Oh, yeah, I don't know if this case would even be uh, with, with the testing and the DNA testing and the ballistics um, knowledge we have today, that in itself, I think, would, uh, would have set up an entirely different trial. I don't think there would have been an arrest. There was, no, there was no, there would have been no arrest. I mean, this was, not to be gruesome, this was a bloody, messy crime. I mean, she shot close range in the head. Blood, we know blood went everywhere, as it would. And yet, he was spotless. There was no blood on his gun. There was no evidence his gun had been cleaned. He didn't have blood on himself. There was nothing linking him physically to this bloody crime. And so he wouldn't have, I don't believe today, he would have been arrested. I think people would have understood the science of the crime scene, of, the, of, of everything. And they would have taken a lot of care to preserve things and they would have quickly eliminated him even as a suspect and probably sought to find somebody who was actually involved in the crime. Do you think there are a lot of other cases maybe like this that we'll start hearing more and more about with advancements in technology and just um, science and everything else? I think we already are hearing about them. Every day there's somebody in the paper who is being released from jail because of a wrongful conviction or what have you. So I do think that there are more families out there who have questions about loved ones and how they died and whether the right person has been charged and convicted with those crimes, that's going, that's never going away. Pune and Renee also want the Clark County prosecuting attorney, Tony Golick, to release the evidence bullet for testing. They feel if they can have it re-examined using new technology, it would show the bullet did not come from Mike's 38 special. I would like the bullet released for review by modern day scientists, to put it simply. They've held the bullet without release for 32 years. And we've heard from other experts that that's very unusual. Usually if there's a question about a crime and there's a question about a piece of evidence, people are more than willing to have uh, another look at it if there's probable cause. But we think that we're an actual modern day scientist able to look at that bullet, look at the, the metallurgy of the bullet, look at the condition of the bullet, they, there's a lot they could conclude that would give us hints as to who really did this. 
So why, why won't they release the bullet or is there a legal challenge to getting that bullet retested? I think that's probably, I would have to speculate, I think that's a decision that the DA has made. We know that the DA has consistently taken the position that there was such controversy around this bullet at the trial. I mean, it, there were problems with this bullet from the beginning. This was really shoddy evidence and they knew it. And they were lucky they got it in and they convinced a jury that it was, that their conclusions were right and they convinced an appellate court. And so they do not want to revisit that controversy. And so that's been their position is that we don't want to revisit the controversy. And I of course think that's a bad reason. Just because there was controversy, that seems to indicate, well, then more is needed to maybe solve some of the controversy. But obviously there's, there's all decision-making and policies in place that, that are governing that decision, I think. I've reached out to the prosecutor multiple times in hopes of interviewing him about this case. He's never called me back. Whether the prosecutor moves forward with the case and pursues the people Pune believes are responsible, there's one thing Pune is aware of. Not everyone has the resources to get as far as she has. She's spent well over a million dollars on her efforts over the years, but it wasn't always like that. She remembers back in her early days of investigating when she could barely pay her bills. She literally had dollars in her bank account, yet every bit of money she earned went back into her work. Do you have any memories where you were so broke eating Top Ramen on a floor? Oh, yes, I do. That you thought, <laughs> I have to stop, but, I, but I'm not going to? So I, um, uh, <laughs> I needed a pack of cigarettes <laughs> this is a long time ago and, um, I didn't have any money. So I called, well, I, I had very little money. So I called, this is, you know, back when you'd call in to find out how much money you had in your account. Mm -hmm. So I called in, uh, it was first interstate at the time and they said I had $14. So I'm like, okay, a pack of cigarettes, what, two bucks. Um, so I went to Plaid Pantry and I got a pack of cigarettes and I handed him my debit card and he said, your debit card was declined. And I remember saying to him, but I could just call I have $14. He's like, well, it was declined. I'm like, okay, well, I'll just write you a check. And I remember him saying to me, well, if your debit card was declined, why should I accept your check? And I said, I promise I have money. I promise I do. And so he's like, okay, fine. And he gave me gave me the pack of cigarettes and I um, opened up a bottle of wine, lit a cigarette and I sat in the middle of my garage and I looked up in the sky and I said, I need money. <laughs> Cause I was broke and I was trying to, my dad was in debt on legal fees. Um, and I was trying to do the investigative portion too and I was really struggling and I just said, you know, I want to do this, but I need money mm -hmm. in order to be able to make this happen because no one's going to help me and no one's going to listen to me. Um, and things seem like they got better. It took a while, but yeah. How would you say this has impacted your life to this day now? You're so close to what you hope is, is an answer that you've been working for for three decades. Has it changed you? Has this given you more, um, more desire to keep working on this? Well, it's 32 years. I mean, I've been going after my mom's killers in one fashion or another for 32 years so um, I hope it's coming to an end it needs to come to an end but I I don't know what's gonna happen um, I'm certainly in it for the long haul because I promised my mom that I would do this for her so it's 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 hard work you know, I mean, it really is hard work and I don't sleep and I'm constantly thinking about what the next step is and what I need to do to get closer to my mom's killer. And it's just a lot of 
work, a lot of energy. And, you know, I'll be at a volleyball game for my child and I'm still thinking my mom and what I need to do for her. So I, I'm done <laughs> after this and I'm looking forward to having some resolution for her. I recently asked Pune if she had any old family videos that might offer a glimpse into their lives before Effie's death. After going through a storage room, Pune was able to track down an old box of beta tapes and had them converted. Are you taping? Mm -hmm. In most of them, Mike was behind the camera. We Many featured a young Puya singing and dancing around the house. You heard a few of those clips earlier in this episode. And I went put on here. There were also videos of Pune in high school, like this one of her at cheerleading practice. Yeah, push me up, ready? One, two, down. <laughs> Another captured banter between father and daughter. Seriously, Daddy, can I take your car? I hate driving to Oldsmobile. It's so embarrassing. There were also lots of recordings of Mike playing the violin, which was his passion. But the one home video that seemed to really bring out all the emotions for Pune was one of Effie, belly dancing to Persian music. Mike was recording her as she gracefully glided around the living room, bashfully smiling at the camera with a clever intensity behind her gaze. Tell me about the tapes. What did you find and what was that like watching those? Um... It was sad, very sad, um, because we were happy. Everybody was happy, and it was just, I mean, my mom and dad getting a divorce, it was because they were two different people. It wasn't because, and, and yeah, I mean, she was probably unhappy. She'd been married since she was 21, but when you look at the, videos everybody just seems so happy and normal and you know my brother's singing and dancing and I, I sent you the video of my mom dancing and my dad videotaping her and and uh my dad was playing the violin and I just the one thing I did think about is we we had a really small home and I thought, oh my God, how is anybody tolerating this? Between You could hear my dad playing the violin in the background. <laughs> my brother <laughs> rapping on the, in the living room. My mom just walking around going, oh my God. <laughs> so I, I'd forgotten. I really, I, I'd forgotten. So it was, it was hard to go through those and I, I'm glad I'm I'm glad I'm watching them at the hopefully at the end of this <laughs> not in the middle because I think it would have um, interrupted my focus. So you know it, um, it's really interesting to hear you talk about this because this is the first time I think I've truly heard you kind of break down a little bit and um, you've always had this level of composure whenever we've talked and we've talked, I mean, gosh, 200, 300 times over the last couple of years now. And I've never heard that sense of that emotion, I guess, in your voice. I can tell that watching those videos affected you to some level. Well, <laughs> and that's a good thing. That's a good thing, Pune. That's, it's good to feel. It's good to to bring it back because I, know, I, just, I think I realized how much I miss her. I just I miss my mom so much. And I just forgotten. Um, and just watching the videos and I don't know if you noticed in the video I sent you, she was looking right at the camera. <laughs> and I just, just feel like she's looking right at you. And I thought, oh, I just remember her funny dances and her laughing all the time. So, anyway. You're making me cry over here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I, I think that's, sorry, sorry. that's really good. I think that's probably the healthiest thing you could have um, <laughs> is to have that moment. As time goes on, I would think it's easy for memories of a loved one who passed away to fade. Each year, it might get harder to remember all the idiosyncrasies and the quirks you loved most about them. For Pune, she's hopeful that her mission to solve this case will somehow keep her connected to both of her parents. You know, I remember growing up, I never wanted to disappoint them. I think the same thing holds true now. I don't, I don't want to disappoint them. You know, the fact is, it didn't just happen to my mom, it happened to my dad too. It happened to them. And if I don't make it right, then I would disappoint them. So I still feel it and I still feel their presence and the guidance. Yeah. Um, Do you see it both ways? It's also vindicating your dad and help, helping his honor as well? Helping well, honor him rather? It, yes, yes, but my focus is my mom and, and getting her killer. And like I've told the DA's office, then they can take over what happened to my dad and and figure that out in the hopes that it doesn't happen again to someone else um, and maybe everyone can learn from what happened. What do you think your dad would think today of your efforts? Do you think about that ever? Um, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I, I, I think he, I don't, I mean, in his last email, he said to me that it, that my, tenacity and my um, diligence would hopefully pay off, but he wasn't sure he'd be around to see the next chapter um, of the story. Not, what does it feel like to know he is, in fact is not here to see it? Well, we worked really hard. I mean, I knew that he wasn't going to be around. And so there was a lot of pressure, both on me and on everyone around me to keep pushing this thing along because I really wanted my dad to see this. I really wanted him to see it. Nothing lasts forever. Regardless of the outcome, whether Mike is ever cleared posthumously or if anyone else is charged with Effie's murder, Pune takes comfort knowing she never stopped, even 32 years later. Because at the end of all of this, she does it for her mom. This is the beginning of the end. I was talking to my mom's friend a couple days ago and she said she had a dream about my mom and she said my mom wouldn't say anything but she was just laughing <laughs> and she says she just kept laughing and um i said that's because she's happy it's a it's a good sign that my mom's laughing like she is so i think i'm close and my brother um about a week ago called and said he said he had not dreamt about my mom for well, 31 years and had a dream about my mom and he said she looked beautiful and kept laughing 
And he said that he was skeptical, like, what's going on? I think she's dead. Why is she here? Um, he, she, but he said he looked over at me and I took off running for my mom and gave her a big hug. And he's like, okay, it must be real. If she's doing it, then I should too. So I think the fact that in the last week, I've heard from two people saying that they've seen my mom means we're close. And she's happy because we're gonna, I think, finally get her killer. This is the beginning of the end. As you can tell, this case is still very much in motion as we wrap up our eighth and, for now, final episode of this podcast. I promise you, we are just as invested in hearing the conclusion to Pune's pursuit as you are, and we'll be back with future episodes as new information warrants, so be sure to stay subscribed to the show. We also want to let you know that Pune is offering a $250,000 reward for information leading to an arrest or conviction of the people responsible for the murder. If you'd like to leave an anonymous tip, you can call 360-210-7430, and you can find more information at effientazari.com. Thanks for listening. is a KGW and Vault Studios production. Please subscribe and leave us a rating or review. We have a lot more information about this case, including videos and pictures on kgw.com slash the yellow car, as well as on the KGW YouTube page. This show is produced, written, and hosted by me, Ashley Korslin. Our audio editor and co-producer is Zachary Carver. Our executive producer is John Tierney. Original artwork by Jeff Patterson and videography by Kurt Austin. Special thanks to Will Johnson and Reed Redmond at Vault Studios, Will Herman, our Tegna Legal Counsel, Andy Thomas and Mila Mamitsa at KGW, and the KGW management and staff. 